Hello there. Some quick plugs before we get started. Follow the show on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. Also follow on the SoundCloud page at Greetings from Allentown. Email greetings from Allentown at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Oops, I mean Apple Music or Apple Podcasts, whatever those guys are calling it now. And you can read my blog, Musings on Wrestling, and much more at section309.com. And now, Hit it. The following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Lucky number episode 13 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today we're going way into the future, at least for the time frame of this program, all the way up to 1997 and checking in on the World Wrestling Federation during an extremely turbulent time just ahead of WrestleMania 13. Today we'll be looking at WWF Shotgun Saturday Night from March 15th, 1997. And Shotgun is a show that's remembered in a lot of different ways. It had a very brief original run, and then it became what it is on this show where it was in the arena. But I do want to rewind and talk about the original concept for Shotgun Saturday Night. Now, back at the end of 1996 is when Superstars was not done away with. It just was kind of converted into a show that actually showed first-run matches into more of a recap show. So they needed a B-show to replace that, and that's what Shotgun ended up becoming. But it was like nothing the WWF had tried before or nothing that WCW had tried before It looked like an ECW show. It was very much kind of in the vein of the ECW hardcore TV. And of course, the alliance with ECW would be made quite evident by February when you had ECW talents showing up on Raw. So you had that little connection there. And ECW had a lot of success in 95 and 96, just kind of getting, you know, with their different presentation. So the idea here was to present WWF programming live on Saturday night. And live is another strange thing, the fact that they wanted to air this B-show live from nightclubs in New York City. The first couple, they well, not so much New York City. See, they kept telling you that it was New York City. They would say the Mirage Nightclub in New York City. Well, really... The Mirage Nightclub is in Westbury, New York, which is slightly less sexy than, you know, the island of Manhattan. I've I've been to Westbury. <laughs> go go try Gino's Pizza on Post Avenue, and if you if it's too crowded there or whatever, go to uh, Alfredo's. Uh, both of them you can't can't really go wrong either way. So they're having it in a nightclub, and this is definitely a situation where I wish that. Bruce Pritchard on his podcast had covered Shotgun Saturday Night. That's been an option on their polls recently 
to do an episode on the evolution and how Shotgun came to be. And I would have loved to have had that for research for this show. Apparently what they did was they went around to various nightclubs scouting locations and I guess they settled on this place in Westbury for whatever reason. And they did it in a few other places. They did it in Penn Station in New York, like underneath Madison Square Garden. They did a very famous show from a club called Denim and Diamonds in San Antonio the night before the Royal Rumble. And it's kind of famous for uh, Terry Funk's Oh, the Oracle of Wrestling. Terry Funk's actions during that show, calling Jim Ross an Oki a-hole, and a few other, you know, your mother's a whore, and a bunch of other stuff. Now, they probably told Terry Funk to go out there and act all middle-aged and crazy and all that business, but, uh, you know, it's it's at 12 o'clock at night. You, you, can, you can be a little bit more loose with the language as... Pillman alludes to on the show we're going to be looking at here. Of course, Jim Ross and Brian Pillman, not the original hosts. The original hosts were Vince McMahon and Sonny. And Sonny has a very interesting role throughout Shotgun. On the first show was one of the strangest WWF segments that has ever aired with Sonny and a human-sized Tickle Me Elmo doll, which was the hot Christmas gift in 1996 so that that's why you had Tickle Me Elmo there and in fact it was actually Todd Pettengill in the suit as Sonny was kind of fondling Todd Pettengill in a suit and it was just really really bizarre and it did not come off very well at all. Now despite all that I give the WWF a lot of credit for trying something different and I mentioned it last week with, where I alluded to that House of Horrors match with Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt. Did people seem to like it? No, no, they didn't. Did I like it? It was okay. I didn't, I didn't hate it the way everybody else does. But I will give them credit for at least trying something different. And Shotgun Saturday Night is definitely one of those out-of-the-box things that they, that they tried. And as a result, a lot of people remember it maybe better than it actually was. It did evolve into just kind of a regular show by the end of 1997. And I didn't really care because this was one of my shows that I would watch. And <laughs> I was, I'm following wrestling in late 1997, 1998, and it's a very hot period. ECW was a little bit down, but I was still very much in love with ECW after falling in in the early summer in 1997. The way I was following the shows, though, had to be interesting because I did not have cable. And if you were at Boston University during that time period, there was one dorm that you could stay in that had cable, and then there was another dorm that was all weird where you had to take like a special shuttle to get there, and I didn't want no part of that. So I had to watch wrestling via rabbit ear antenna in 1997 and 98. After that year, I would come to know people who lived in one of the two dorms with cable TV, and I would be able to watch Raw and Nitro and other stuff there. So my programming list, as it were, 
was I would watch Shotgun Saturday Night, which aired in the Boston area at midnight on Fox 25. I'm pretty sure it was Fox 25. My WCW show, which, and this is so ridiculous, was WCW Worldwide, which by 1997 was not really much of anything. It was it would air recaps of Nitro. You would have these taped-in-the-can soulless matches from the Universal Studios in Florida. But I remember it so fondly for stuff like there was a Ric Flair-Barry Horowitz match that was the feature bout on a February 1998 episode of Worldwide. And I check YouTube probably once a month looking for that entire episode because the match between Flair and Horowitz is there. It's on Monsoon Classics page. And it actually is the feature bout. And I love it so much because it is the 16-time world champion, all-time legend Ric Flair versus Barry Horowitz, who is what he is, maybe an all-time enhancement worker. You know, if, if you ask anybody, it's definitely a name that stands out. So WCW Worldwide, it was my jam during that time. And another thing I remember about Worldwide, and I have to digress here, is there was a promo with Dean Malenko. And of course, Dean Malenko never got to speak on Nitro. And he has this 90-second promo with Gene where he's talking about respect. And you could tell he's clearly uncomfortable talking. And I was like, oh, this is... This is this is rather this is rather different, but also why am I watching this? Oh yes, because it's airing on I think it was I think it was airing on channel thirty-eight in Boston at like one in the morning on Thursday night or something like that. And I had a roommate who was never there, which was just as well because he got busted for weed six weeks after I got there and then eventually got kicked out of housing in April of nineteen ninety-eight for apparently some kind of incident with his girlfriend. I mean, I'm not naming names here, but apparently he may have struck her or something. So so he left, and then I had a uh, double room all to myself for about six weeks, and he took all... He actually just taken all of his stuff and left, except he left, oddly enough, a VHS copy of Rocky IV. And I don't know if I still have that, but I hung on to that for a good while because we were still very much in the VHS era. And ECW in Boston would air <laughs> at a very, on a very unusual channel. It would air on Channel 27, which was Univision out of Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was kind of strange that I could pick up the signal of this station in Boston because I often had trouble getting even the CBS affiliate to come in correctly. But I could pick up this UHF station out of Worcester, Massachusetts, which is about 45 miles west of Boston. And that is how I would watch ECW, a show that I only came across because I had a local access television show that aired in the summer of 1997, and it was on Friday nights at 11.30 in Burlington, Massachusetts, and also Malden, Massachusetts for some reason, because that's where we went to high school. And one night we were watching it over at my friend's house, and at 11.30, we watch the show, and then it ends. And at 12, we're flipping around, and we come upon ECW. And we started watching it. And it was the episode where... It was the episode where Jerry Lawler shows up in the ECW arena with the lights out and all that. It's the Tommy Dreamer-Raven match. And 
Maybe my memory fogs me on that, but I remember that as the first ECW that I ever watched, and it was so unbelievably crazy that I was hooked from that point on, at least for several years. Now, as for ECW, I put a poll up on the Twitter account, GF Allentown Pod, about whether I should take a look at ECW shows, even though they don't really appear to be on YouTube. There's an episode from the fall of 2000, which I don't think would really do it justice because I wasn't watching by late 2000. I had kind of closed the book on ECW by then. But full episodes, of course, are on the network. And, you know, with dubbed over music, but still the episodes are there and I have enough of a memory of how the episodes would go that I could cover it. And I would probably cover something from my time period, 97 or 98. I know that there's... I I would lean towards one, perhaps the episode where (laughs) Taz takes on Brackus. And uh, he's got his manager there, Lance Wright, who I'm going to be talking about later on this show because he's actually the ring announcer on Shotgun Saturday Night. Lance Wright was one of those guys in ECW. I had no idea where the hell he came from. But he was an employee of the WWF, and he is the ring announcer for this episode of Shotgun Saturday Night, which was taped March 10th, 1997, at the Worcester Centrum Center, although I don't know if it was called the Worcester Centrum Center at that point. I know it was around that time that they were changing the name. It used to be just the Worcester Centrum or the Centrum, but then they made it like the Centrum Center. I guess they tried to build a mall around it. I don't really spend a lot of time in Worcester. I, in fact, I can't, I think the last event that I attended at the Centrum in Worcester was a Ruth Springsteen show in 2005. And before that, I think I attended a hockey game there, an AHL hockey game or, or something. Oh, wait, I, I went to Slamboree 98 there, didn't I? Yes. How could I How could I forget Slamboree 1998 with its very, very strange booking decisions? I did write about that at the blog at section309.com, so I'm going to sneak in that plug here. But let's get back to WWF Shotgun Saturday Night. They would have decent matches on the early editions of Shotgun. And as I said, you had Terry Funk all over that San Antonio episode. There's a Triple H versus Undertaker match on one of them, which we would be subjected to at multiple WrestleManias. And I'm probably a little jaded by saying subjected to. I mean, I guess they were good matches, but the WrestleMania 28 one is a bit of a handy there. It's like, oh, great. Let's all pose at the top of the ramp afterwards. Oh, great job, guys. Yes, the era is over. Who cares? In any event, yeah, they they would have matches between named guys. You would have Goldust on there, and he would face, you know, blah, blah, blah. Of course, in the early episode, you have Marlena flashing the crowd. So, you know, they're going to try some risque things here. And in 1997, Brian Pillman was presented as a very risque character, and he's making his announcing debut on this show working alongside Jim Ross. And there are matches here between named teams. You're not going to see any of the tippy-top guys, as this was taped before the Raw on March 10th. We got Triple H against Bob Holly, who 
made very infrequent appearances on television in 96 and 97, but he's here, and he is actually presented as Bob Holly. We have Furnace and Lafon taking on the Headbangers, and the Headbangers were also had an interesting uh, history vis-a-vis Shotgun Saturday Night. We will also hear from Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. They were going through their troubles at this point before the Hart Foundation would be formed. And we'll also see Flash Funk in action along with Heavy Metal versus Hector Garza. So a little slice of AAA in the WWF in early 1997. So let's get moving on this, shall we? I rock the party that rocks the body. The first match we have Hunter Hearst Helmsley still in his mid-cod for life stage, although that would be changing shortly, going up against Bob Holly, who had dropped mostly the Sparky Plug moniker, which I never really got. I know they were going for STP, as if that was some sort of cute pun, but just another one of those mid-90s failures of occupation. I mean, why would the race car driver also have to wrestle? I guess NASCAR has a rich tradition, though, of guys who like to fight, and if you if you look there there's a lot there's a lot of great fights between race car drivers. It's always like when there's like the accident and one guy confronts the other and then they have a little scuffle on the track. Of course that stuff used to be worse back in like the 50s and 60s when they were running on dirt tracks and pe- people just didn't give a crap because it wasn't airing on national TV and they they didn't have 50,000 sponsors spread all over their uniform. But the real focus here is Hunter Hearst Helmsley because Bob Holly was barely working at that point in 1997. And this is the start of him becoming what he would become because he owed a lot of it to China. And China had only been there for about a month, debuting at the February In Your House as a person from the stands who grabbed Marlena and just started choking her and was ejected and eventually she becomes the ringside presence for Hunter Hearst Helmsley and there's absolutely no way I think that Helmsley becomes a star as quickly as he did without her there because she was such a key part of the act. Why yes he did win the intercontinental title near the end of 1996 but Honestly, being the IC champion at that point in time in late 96 didn't really mean a whole lot. And I think we can all agree that his star-making turn didn't really happen until you get to the middle of 1997. He wins the King of the Ring, which of course had been supposedly deferred by a year due to the fact that he was the only person they could punish for the curtain call. Although I think... A lot of that is kind of lore that's played up by him somewhat in kind of retrospect. And then you get him paired with Shawn Michaels by the end of the year. So he's 
standing next to the world champion at all times is part of this stable and of course that was going to elevate him as well but without China I'm not sure any of that really happens I do think that he would have become a star eventually probably not on that level just because of that lovely head of hair there everybody likes to talk about his head of hair and of course he had the riding pants on the riding pants thing the black tights with like the weird belt and then he had his hair like it wasn't quite in like a man bun but there was something holding it together i don't know if it was like a scrunchie or whatever it was the 1990s so they show marlena going after china on raw just kind of jumping on china's back there and pillman who, of course, is the loose cannon, and they're playing him up like he's going to say anything. And there were a couple of things, not bleeped, but silenced on this show, which is funny because Pillman was talking about the censors when he was introduced and he sat down with JR, and he says to JR, uh, if the censors have a problem, you're the one who's going to get fired, not me. Which is kind of funny given that, uh, well, Jim Ross did get into trouble later on because of things that Ric Flair may have done at a SummerSlam thing in 2013. Of course, Jim Ross is back in the fold at WWE as I speak. Now, Pillman, he, he goes right in on China and just wastes no time saying what kind of what everybody was thinking at the time. He calls her Red China, which I found amusing as a student of international history because the People's Republic of China hadn't really been called, quote, Red China for quite some time. I think that's something that went away around 1979 when the United States dropped its weird 70s era to China policy, where we were still, and I'm referring to the United States as we because I am an American, where the United States was looking at Taiwan and China as sort of equals, but we were kind of treating Taipei, Chinese Taipei, which is what they had to call it in order to not offend Red China. And Jimmy Carter put a stop to that in 1979, fully normalizing relations with the People's Republic of China as, that was started by Nixon in the early 70s. So that's my little history thing for this week. Later in the match, Pillman says that China looks androgynous and wonders, it, has she been tested? I don't know if he means a steroid test or some kind of gender identity t test, but I kind of feel what he was getting at there. He also says China, who of course this is before the China that would become more familiar with in 99, 2000, 2001 after she had jaw surgery and other plastic surgery down the road. Pillman calls her the, the face that launched a thousand plastic surgeons, which I don't know how you would launch plastic surgeons. I guess, I guess maybe people would decide to become plastic surgeons after viewing her. There's got some rest holds in this match early uh, between Triple H and Bob Holly. And by the way, uh, this was Hunter Hearst Helmsley's first pay-per-view opponent was Bob Holly at SummerSlam 1995. So nice little tidbit there. Not from the broadcast, but from me. So they go into some rest holds, and this allows the opportunity for Pillman to just kind of go off and talk about his feud with Austin, which of course 
was the elephant in the room as Pillman's last appearance on WWF television was sitting in a living room holding a gun and pointing it at Steve Austin in November of 1996 on Raw. And they had done the angle where Austin had Pillmanized Pillman's leg. That's where the term came from. On Actually, it was on Superstars and not on Raw, where he put his ankle in a chair and came off the ropes and kind of smashed it up that way. That was to allow Pillman some time to recover. And Pillman, of course, still very upset about this, but now he's back on commentary. JR asks when Pillman is going to be back in the ring. And Pillman goes off on the doctors, blaming them for part of his plight. What's also fun is that Pillman acknowledges the history that he had with Austin pre-WWF, which they had alluded to, but it's kind of neat to hear it here. He says that Austin, of course, was his tag partner in a previous life and that he was Austin's mentor, which when I look at the Hollywood Blondes in 1993 WCW, I don't exactly see Pillman as Austin's mentor. I kind of see them as it's definitely not an old guy, young guy team and it's not two young hotshots coming up. They're kind of like a team of equals, sort of like what the Revival are right now, two guys who are about on the same level who made a very good team. And Pillman is very upset with the fans. Even though he got a nice cheer from the good people of Worcester when he came out, he's very upset with the amount of cheers that Steve Austin has been getting since Pillman has been gone. He calls him a fake prophet, which <laughs> kind of funny to hear the word fake on a uh, wrestling show there and says that he is going to kick his ass, and that is where they you, they silence out ass, which is kind of funny that they're doing that on a Saturday night midnight program, given that you have Austin coming up in 97 and 98, who would basically be all like his promos, ass, 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 316, that's the bottom line. It would basically be like that, if, if you recall. So, yeah, there is an actual match here, but as I said, there's a lot of rest holds there, and I don't know if that was designed to give Pillman a chance to talk there. Uh, Triple H uh, goes in with his knee-based offense, which just drives me insane when I watch Triple H stuff from 96 and 97. Everything, Everything is a freaking knee. It's a high knee. It's a... The guy puts his head down for a backdrop, and instead of you know kicking him like you usually see that transition, and we'll we'll, we'll see that in an upcoming match. That's going to be a bugaboo coming up. Triple H likes to do the knee thing there. I mean, then he does the Harley race knee drop. He does then hit a neck breaker. So nice to see a non knee based move there. At that point, he pulls out the scrunchie or whatever it is from his hair which I don't know if that's supposed to be like Lawler pulling down the strap or whatever, but it allows that beautiful blonde hair to flow. Oh, he looks like he's right out of a shampoo commercial. And then he does the then he does the little bow where he, you know, he extends his arms out, you know, which is all sorts of ridiculous, but whatever. Holly does come back here and tries to do a superplex. And I'm like, this is really strange that he's going to try to hit this big of an impact move given that he hasn't had that much offense. H kind of throws him off. Yeah, I'm just going to call him single H because, as I said, he was not quite what he would become. 
throws Holly off there, and then Triple H, excuse me, H, tries to come off the top, and he gets hit as well, so don't try any top rope moves in this match because they're just going to backfire. And then, in something that I had to rewind three times to make sure I was seeing it correctly, Bob Holly lands a friggin' Frankensteiner that actually looked kind of decent, and he gets a two count. Now, JR calls it a Rana, but I think it was more of a Frankensteiner because it looked more like Helmsley landed on his head. And that's the difference between the Frankensteiner and the Rana, is the Frankensteiner is supposed to drive your head into the mat there. Holly then misses a move off the top, so now we're 0 for 3 here in moves off the top rope. And you know what that means. It means it's pedigree time. And he hits Holly with the move. And luckily, he actually goes for the pin right away. So he did not do his WrestleMania 19 bit against Booker T, where at Safeco Field, he hits the pedigree, leaves, gets a cab to the airport, flies to Chicago, O'Hare, takes the blue line down for whatever reason. He could have easily taken a cab, but takes a blue line to downtown, he goes to Lou Malnati's in downtown Chicago. He has to wait about 15 or 20 minutes for a table. Gets a medium deep dish pizza. And if you know anything about deep dish pizza, it takes a little bit longer to make. So he's you know got to be there about 30 minutes or so. He eats a good chunk of the pizza and uh, gives the rest away or whatever. And then at that point, he takes a cab back to O'Hare. And he, there's a problem with his flight because he decided to fly United because, of course, it is O'Hare. And they have to kick somebody off the plane. They have to drag a guy out or whatever. And H is standing there, sitting there on the plane waiting for it to take off. They finally resolve everything. The flight takes off to Seattle. Unfortunately, it gets diverted to Portland. Now, when he gets to Portland, what he does is he actually decides to just spend the money and hop in a cab, go from Portland to Seattle, takes him right to Safeco Field, he goes back in the stadium. Booker T is still down at this point, after all this, and he gets the pin on Booker T there. Luckily, we didn't have to go through that here, because he just pins Bob Holly for the 1-2-3, and he's set up for his match against Goldust, which is a feud that went on for a little bit there. And Triple H did get the win over Goldust at WrestleMania 13. But you know it wasn't peak Hunter Hearst Helmsley or Triple H at that point because the match at WrestleMania was only the fourth longest one on the show. And as we all know, recent Triple H WrestleMania matches have to be either the longest match or the second longest match at WrestleMania. And we have no other choice. I have a really kind of complex feelings about him, as you can probably discern from the way I'm talking about Triple H. A couple of years ago on the blog section309.com, I wrote something, for, for whatever reason, at the time, I was feeling great admiration for Triple H's political maneuverings and skills. I, I had kind of just decided to appreciate him for that. So I wrote an article called Dr. Strange Game, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and love the game. It was some headline like that, a playoff, uh, Dr. Strange loved the movie. And I felt that way at the time, and then I 
reread it about two weeks later. And I was like, I don't even really feel that way anymore. But I kind of left it up because it was how I felt at the time. It's kind of weird how he's able to maneuver himself. Well, actually, it's not weird. He's screwing the boss's daughter. But the fact that he's in these big spots to this day and is treated as this sort of I don't know. He he's not on the level of Austin, a Hogan, or a Flair. So don't get me wrong. You know he's a big star and an all-time star within the confines of WWE. But it's interesting to think about what he might have been, say, if he never went to WWE, if he had stayed in WCW and been Regal's tag partner. What if he had never married Stephanie McMahon? What if he had never been paired with China? And that's the point right now is China was so instrumental in his success in 1997 that it got the whole thing kick-started. But hey, you know, we can't put him in the Hall of Fame because some kid might Google her, you know? get a promo for Wrestlemania 13 coming up in eight days from this airing and that's a Wrestlemania that gets a lot of crap for not being very good and a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that it was not the biggest event of the year everything was screwy with Shawn Michaels I lost my smile and everything being in flux. You have Sid as the champion. A lot of lot of things. It was, it was only the fifth or sixth highest buy rate of 1997, which is just really bizarre for a WrestleMania looking back. It's not a hard show to watch, in my opinion, at least if you can get through the first little bit, because the Rocky Maivia Sultan match is just abysmal. And that was definitely a turning point for people to turn on Rocky and his push even more. But Hunter versus Goldust isn't too bad. I mean, that's that's a decent enough match there. Uh, I enjoyed Owen and Bulldog versus Mankind Invader, although it was kind of weird having four heels in a match with each other at WrestleMania. Hart and Austin is an all-time match. And that can't be argued. I consider it, well, it's definitely in the top three for WrestleMania matches of all time. And yeah, I know. I, I, don't, I shortchanged the Michaels-Undertaker matches from 25 and 26 for whatever reason. There, there are some small issues that I have with that. Another, one thing about WrestleMania 13, and it's played up in this uh, video, is and it's often forgotten from the card for whatever reason is the Chicago street fight with the Nation of Domination against Ahmed Johnson and the Legion of Doom. That was a fun little 10-minute sprint with weapons, and you bring out the kitchen sink so you get your comedic bit there, and I thought they did a really good job. I mean, it's a freaking Ahmed Johnson match. I don't know what the hell you'd want, but I thought they did a good job there. And Undertaker Sid was what it was. I mean... I don't know what you could really expect out of Sid, but I have probably a greater tolerance for big man matches of that type than most fans, so 
I probably rank that WrestleMania overall a little bit higher, but it's not in like the depths of say WrestleMania 9 or WrestleMania 11 or WrestleMania 32, which I feel like just ended 20 minutes ago, even though it was a year and three months ago or whatever it was. They just feel like forever to get through. And our next bout is a match between two very peculiar teams of the time period with Furness and LaFon, Doug Furness and Phil LaFon, also known as the Cam Am Express, taking on the Headbangers. And I'll start with the Headbangers here because their history and the kind of their journey at the time period was kind of closely linked to that of Shotgun Saturday Night because they appeared on one of the first shotguns as the Flying Nuns, which I have no idea how or why or whatever that gimmick was actually created. And I was shocked to find out that they were actually the headbangers in late 1996, so they had that gimmick. And then they got switched over to this Flying Nuns thing. Brother Love shows up out of nowhere on Shotgun and renames them the Sisters of Love. And apparently they got some complaints from various religious organizations, well, probably just the Catholics, and they had to scrap that, which was probably for the best because that was not something that was going to work. So by the end of January 97, they're back to being the headbangers again and kind of into the gimmick that we would all know. And I kind of dug them as the headbangers. They were not true faces and they were not true heels. Uh, For some reason, it sort of worked. It might have been... Uh, symptomatic of the fact that the WWF's tag team division, while they had a lot of teams around, it didn't really feel like anything was gelling. For your tag champions, you always just seem to have, well, here's Owen and Bulldog. So it's two single stars together. And then after that, you have Shawn Michaels and Stone Cold Steve Austin as a makeshift team winning the tag titles. And then finally, you know, as you get more towards the end of the year, you get more traditional teams winning the tag titles again. And the Headbangers were in that mix, and they did have a short tag team title run. I do think that their gimmick there as the Headbangers would have worked a little bit better if it had been a couple of years before that. If the Headbangers had existed, let's say, in 1993 WWF. You could have thrown them in there with the Quebecers for the Tag Team Championships. They could have kind of taken that spot when the Steiners left in 94. You could have turned them heel or something and had them go against Men in a, men in a Mission in a Headbangers versus Rappers feud. That might have been mildly interesting, although I don't know how you could have gotten a decent match out of that, but... You know, it's somewhat interesting to me. And it's absolutely crazy. And in kind of researching the headbangers here, I was reminded of something. Oh, yeah, they were on SmackDown Live just last year in 2016 when they were going to crown the new SmackDown Tag Team Champions for the first time, which ended up becoming, I think, Heath Slater and Rhino during that brief run where Heath Slater was once again relevant and then just kind of, faded back after the 
nice little I'm a guy who needs to feed my kids thing, the headbangers were there as part of that. And I guess they're not that old. I, they would have been mid-20s at that point in the 1990s, so they're probably about mid-40s right now. But it's kind of a New Age Outlaws thing, like when they had their little go in 2013, 2014, except the headbangers are never quite on that level that the New Age Outlaws got to. As for Furnace and Lafon, their credentials from a Japanese wrestling perspective cannot be questioned, as they were the five-time... All Asia Tag Champions in All Japan Pro Wrestling, so they were mainstays in that promotion for much of the 1990s. And they made their way over to the United States, stopping off in ECW in 1996, and had a brief run there with some matches against the team of Rob Van Dam and Sabu. And they debut at the Survivor Series in 1996, and they end up being the Survivors in that match, and they looked very, very good in doing so and you think okay here they are they're they're on their way maybe maybe we got something here and eventually they get built up to a tag title feud with Owen Hart and the British Bulldog they have a match at in your house final four this is after they had beaten Owen and Bulldog on Raw I believe in a non-title match I know shocking the champion lost a non-title match on Raw it happened even then and at Final Four, they end up winning by disqualification, but they were kind of background players in moving along that tension storyline between Owen and Bulldog. So you think, okay, well, they didn't win it here, but certainly they'll win the Tag Team Championships off Bo Owen and Bulldog at some point. But they end up in a number one contenders match at WrestleMania 13 as one of the four teams in that match, and they, they lose that. And what happens after that is that there's a car accident and they're out for quite a while. And they don't come back really until the fall of 1997 where they make a brief appearance on Team Canada in one of the Survivor Series matches against Team USA. And they're both eliminated. They don't, both don't survive the match. And that's pretty much the end of their WWF run except for small appearances on shotguns and whatnot. They wouldn't really appear on Raw into early 1998, although I had some ideas of what they could have done with them. However, I will tell you one thing that they definitely should not have done with Furnace and Lafon, and that was to call attention to their sort of lack of charisma. Neither one of those guys was particularly electric in the ring, unless you're talking about Doug Furnace's dropkick, which is renowned as one of the best around. Pillman immediately just goes off on how these guys have no charisma, and JR just sort of agrees. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm holding my head in my hands, and I'm like, why do you even run these guys out there if you're just going to crap on them and just say, hey, everybody, everybody, look at these guys with no charisma, okay? Look, let's, just, let's just tell everybody about their weaknesses, but not talk about any of their strengths, like their in-ring work. Although I will say that LaFon is a little too mechanical in the way that he works. It's almost like... He's almost machine-like. It's not very fluid. There's just something there that doesn't seem as natural. Uh, Furnace didn't really have as much of a problem with that. It kind of reminds me of the Alberto Del Rio thing. It's like, yeah, Del Rio might be a decent enough quote-unquote worker, 
but everything in the ring just looks like it's, you know, he's... I've, I've never enjoyed myself watching an Alberto Del Rio match. I do enjoy Furnace and Lafon for Lafon's little weaknesses there. I, I think it might have been just this match. The Headbangers might not have been the best team for them to go up against. Uh, Owen and Bulldog, you get much better matches with Owen and Bulldog against Furnace and Lafon. Funny moment in this back and forth match is when Lafon hits a senton off the ropes and JR calls it a buttocks drop, which is kind of funny. I mean, I guess the term senton maybe hadn't caught on in 1997. Pillman channels Kevin Bacon from the end of Animal House by declaring that all is well with Owen Hart and Davy Boy Smith and that there's really nothing to worry about there course those guys would all end up in the Hart Foundation together and you probably couldn't have seen Pillman being part of that type of group except for the fact that Pillman did train at the dungeon in Calgary and was a veteran of stampede wrestling in the late 1980s which is where he got his start in wrestling this match is really not very good this is probably an example of Furnace and Lafon not quite living up to things, but as I said, the Headbangers probably not the best opponent for them at this point in time. Three times in this match, you get the exact same transition spot with the guy putting his head down for a big back body drop, but he gets kicked in the face. They did that same spot three times in one match. This ends up in a double countout, and so really, this was just you know, time you know. Like, what is going on here? Nothing nothing was accomplished here, but it's just a match on Shotgun Saturday Night, I guess. And it's, you know, an opportunity for them to crap on Furnace and Lafon. And let me give you an idea of what they could have done with them. Let's assume that there was no car accident and that you could have done something with them. For the love of God, give them a freaking manager. I mean, managers have worked in wrestling since God knows when. And for some reason around this time period, it was starting to get phased out. And these were two guys who desperately needed some sort of mouthpiece. I'm, I'm thinking that Jim Cornette would have been the absolute perfect guy. And I know Cornette probably did not want to go out on the road. And I would say, you know what, that's fine. These guys can do the house shows by themselves. You only come to TV. Be the mouthpiece for these guys. Rile everybody up. Uh, I mean... If you had to do the if you had to do the new Midnight Express, which they ended up doing with Bob Holly and Bart Gunn, they could have done it with these two guys, I think, because they're reasonable facsimiles if you take them at their peak. I wouldn't be embarrassed to call them the new Midnight Express. I mean, I'm not saying that they are Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, or Stan Lane, whichever combination of the Midnight Express you prefer, but at least it wouldn't have been as bar- embarrassing as Sparky Plug and one half of the Smoking Guns teaming up as the new Midnight Express. I mean, really, you could have given them any any sort of manager, I think, would have would have worked. And that's, of course, assuming that they didn't have the car accident there. And they would end up in ECW with, during for a period that I really don't remember them being on TV that much. They were part of that... Lance Wright stable, and there I go again man- mentioning Lance Wright. I'm thinking I might set the record here for most Lance Wright mentions in a single podcast, but he's coming up next, and he's going to be interviewing Owen Hart and Davy Boy Smith. 
Before the interview with Owen Hart and the British Bulldog, they show some of the things that led up and kind of caused their tensions. You see the non-title win by Furness and Lafon over Owen and Bulldog that led then to the Final Four match where there was another misunderstanding where Bulldog humorously clotheslines Owen and then Furness and Lafon, they hit a big move on Owen, go for the pin, and then Davey runs back in to break up the pin. It's kind of a fun little sequence there. And then, of course, the tournament finals for the European title to crown the first WWF European champion. I don't know where they thought they could go with that if there was no European to actually hold the title. But Bulldog wins, and Owen is really dejected in the ring, and he wants to hold up the belt with him, and Bulldog wants him to let go of the belt. So there they are, and there are a lot of tensions heading into their WrestleMania title defense against Vader and Mankind. And there to interview them is Lance Wright with a very Zach Morris-looking hairdo standing in the center of the ring. And this is a guy that's very hard to find information on. He was only an on-camera presence in in WWF for a very short period. He's much more known for his ECW days running the, quote, Team WWF or Team Titan, where he managed Furnace and LaFon and Brackus and Draws and people that were in ECW because WWF wanted to give them seasoning or, I guess, in the case of Furnace and LaFon, didn't really know what to do with them. But he was on the ECW television in the mid-90s hosting their Hype Central segments that was probably more famously hosted by Joel Gertner, who, of course, would go on to become the hilarious ring announcer for the Dudley Boys by the late 1990s. And Lance Wright ends up as the ring announcer on this show and interviewer. And here are some fun facts about Lance Wright, who is a childhood friend of Joey Styles. And that was how he ended up getting into the business and into ECW. And uh, on a message board, on the WrestlingClassics.com message board, somebody had dug out an interview with Lance Wright from 1997. It's uh, J.N. Lister is the screen name there so I want to give proper credit there for this great information because there's hardly anything on Lance Wright out there. He's a lifelong fan of the business and a friend's brother-in-law was an executive producer at WWF and got him an internship in 1993 and Wright's main job was to research the towns that the WWF was running so that when they would do the live event news section, Gene Okerlund, it says Gene Okerlund, this must have been right at the end of his time there because he left right around SummerSlam 1993. It was so he could make local references. So if somebody was coming, if they were coming to the Boston Garden, you would make a local reference by talking about the Freedom Trail or the Harp, which is a bar across the street from the Boston Garden at that point. At least I think the Harp was opened in 1993. I don't know, whatever. This led to a full-time job for Wright as a production assistant in 1994, working mainly on superstars. He eventually, though, was laid off when WWF uh, went through some cutbacks there. And he'd been going to the ECW Arena shows, of course, as I mentioned, a friend of Joey Styles, and that's what led to his Hype Central gig. But that wasn't it for Lance Wright in terms of television. 
years later, he's the producer on an internet TV show that's called Strip Club The Series. And I'll just read the... It's not what you think it is. I thought it was going to be a thing about a strip club, but in fact, there's actually still a Kickstarter out on this. I don't know if it's active, but here's the plot summary of the show. Ryan and Pike, two lifelong comic book fans and new college graduates, room in with their move in with their freshman roommate Zach. Due to the difficult job market, they need to find a way to make money for rent and living expenses. They hatch a plan that involves creating a fake comic book club to get funding from their college, which kind of hits home for me because, uh, as I alluded to many episodes ago, when I was in college, some friends and I, we formed the Boston University Wrestling Federation, the BUWF, and we essentially used it, yes, it was a wrestling fan club, but effectively we used it as a vehicle to get money from the school so that we could then get space at a place like the Sports Depot in Alston or whatever and get like a room and we could watch pay-per-views that way instead of ordering it and cramming it into one room. So that way our undergraduate student fee, which is the what it was called at Boston University, at least at that time, was going towards something useful, allowing us to watch the 1999 Survivor Series. We also showed WrestleMania 2000 in the student union on a big projector screen and it was streamed from the internet and I recall us having all sorts of issues with the stream because it was the year 2000 and internet obviously was not at a place where live streaming was going to be consistent but of course you know watching the recent WrestleManias gets hung up on my Roku or whatever each time and it was happening there and it was happening during the four-way main event and I just remember the people in the crowd were like no like and it would get hot you know it would stop and then it would kind of refresh 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 and then it would keep going so anyway not not sure how I got onto that uh it's a cute little interview here with Owen and Bulldog Owen's got a few choice words Bulldog says that there's no animosity apparently Davy Boy here is going to be the bigger man and gonna kind of take the high road and put all of this behind them before their strange match at WrestleMania 13. There's not a whole lot here, but I, I do love one particular line from Owen Hart. Well, first of all, I just want to get a point across. I've had a lot of people talk about my match with the British Bulldog in Berlin for this very belt. Well, let me get something straight right now and get to the point. Bulldog. You beat me fair and square. We all know that if I had really tried my hardest, I could have beat you if I wanted. But I don't want to focus on that. Wow. Come on. Bulldog. What an arrogant attitude. Listen to me. The way that played out with Owen and Bulldog and the tensions and it just bubbling over shortly after WrestleMania and then Bret Hart coming to the rescue and kind of reuniting the family in the form of the Hart Foundation. You have Owen with his with his tears in the ring, which, you know, probably wanted to make Brett laugh or something. I it could not have been done any better. It's it was one of the best things that they did during the time period. And I love that group all through 1997. It was it was an all too brief run, kind of like the Four Horsemen with Barry Windham in 1988. Everybody remembers that very fondly, but it was only from April of 1988 to early September of 1988. 
And things could not have worked out much better for them with all the shows in Canada during that summer culminating, of course, in that Canadian stampede in your house, which I need to watch at least once every six months to a year because it's one of the most, it's definitely the best in your house pay per view. If you need to pick just one in your house pay per view to ever watch, at least up to the point when they were calling it in your house at the beginning of it. So that cuts off shortly after that, around, I think, after SummerSlam 1997. That might have been the last one that was called In Your House, colon, and then fill in the name there. And it was just wonderful. And they they were losing to WCW in the ratings every single week in 1997. Every single week for that calendar year, Nitro beat Raw. But like I always say, when you have good booking... The ratings tend to be a lagging indicator as people catch up and kind of catch on to good stuff that's going on. And that was definitely, I think, what happened with WCW v WWF in great things about this particular video is that the commercials have been left in which is a you know you'd like to have the commercials taken out in most of these things uh, occasionally you see a stray classic commercial whatever buried in one of these old videos but here are the entire set of ads from New York 55 channel is still left in there and during this break before we see Flash Funk take on Burt Centeno we get an ad for the Sega Saturn which was I think the successor to the Sega Genesis I don't know if it was a 32-bit or a 64-bit system or whatever it was I do remember it was a CD thing and that I had absolutely no interest in ever owning it I do regret back in the day not buying a PlayStation 1 when I had the chance. I could have stayed in the game of video consoles, but I made my bed with PC games, which for the games I was playing is more or less dead because I don't think they even make Madden or NHL series, EA Sports that is. I don't think they make those games anymore for the PC. And in any event, I think the last one I ever played was NHL 2007, so I've been out of that for a while. There's also an ad for the Long Island Rideshare, because, you know, we got to combat that traffic problem on Long Island, which 20 years later is probably worse than it was then, <laughs> I would say, having sat in it plenty of times myself. And we have a psychic hotline that is offering six free minutes if you call. Now, I can't imagine that they would give you a whole lot in that first six minutes. It would probably be like Larry Zabisco is your psychic and that you're just going to see the first six minutes just be complete stalling before they get into the Picayune, Michigas, and hoo-ha of a, what a psychic hotline represents. Anyway, a little bit on Bert Centeno here since he's got a mildly interesting background, although... On, I believe it was Cage Match, they have him with a 0-36 career record, at least as Burt Centeno, 
but he did go under the name El Masquerado at one point, which is not to be confused with the El Masquerado who appears in the 2005 horror film WrestleManiac, which I don't know what this was supposed to be, but I love the little blurb for it. It says, while shooting a porn film in Mexico, crew members encounter a legendary psychotic wrestler. And it says Rey Mysterio. And I'm thinking, how did I not know about this before now? Anyway, I'm just getting distracted here. Uh, Centeno is a true Puerto Rican jobber in the finest Johnny Rods tradition. And he would stick around in the business for a while after this and was actually on one of the first chaotic wrestling shows in June of 2001. Chaotic wrestling is actually my home indie promotion up here in the Northeast. And my word to anyone listening here is if you know, you're a little bit down on WWE and it's easy to feel that way, especially if you're listening to some, you know, a podcast where I'm talking about stuff from over 20 years ago, to support your local indie promotion, get out there and see them. And it, it's kind of a cool experience to just, I, I first went to a chaotic show about two and a half years ago and uh, Donovan Dijak was the chaotic champion at that time. And of course now he's a much bigger name. He was in Ring of Honor and he's uh, he's definitely a name to watch in the next three or four years coming up because I think he's got a look that I think will he will <laughs> I think he'll make it in WWE at some point just based on his look alone, but his in-ring ability is also very good. Back to Centeno here. Uh, Pillman Pillman thinks that they found this guy at the homeless shelter, which I don't know. I I think in Worcester, it could be a lot worse than that. So uh, yeah, Centeno here, he does get in some offense in the match against Flash Funk, who is going to be facing off against Billy Gunn at the free-for-all at WrestleMania. JR says, Flash Funk will be part of WrestleMania and uh, it'll be in the free-for-all against Billy Gunn in in his pre-Rockabilly state. Funk, (laughs) no relation, of course, to Terry and Dory and the rest of the Funk family, was something of a workhorse for the WWF in 1997. He was in by the accounts of one of the statistical sites, I forgot to note exactly which one because I was cross-referencing, over 150 matches in 1997 alone with a record of 49 wins, 102 losses, and one tie. And it's interesting because he had 100 losses in that year and earlier in the decade he had another year where he had over 100 wins in a single year and that's a that's a lot of wrestling in an era where maybe they weren't wrestling seven nights a week going across the country they weren't i think the schedule was a little bit more insane back in the 80s and of course these sites that have all the statistics may not be entirely complete so it would probably be much more than 102 losses and in the year with 100 wins much more than 100 wins so flash funk kind of like 
a pitcher in baseball who is something of an innings eater. You can throw him out there. He's going to give you a good match. He's, he's, you know, he's, well, he's flashy because they call him Flash Funk now, but I'll get into that gimmick in a second. He's kind of like Dave Burba. And if you remember, there there I go again with a cross-racial comparison. So Dave Burba, as you recall, was kind of a average, league average starting pitcher. He would always throw about 200 to 210 innings a year. His ERA would be maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit worse than the league average ERA. He was always a solid guy that I like to have in fantasy baseball at the time when I actually played that. So Flash Funk, he's got the Funkettes with him who were later uh, future endeavored or whatever the term was at the time because you know to pay the two women to dance around him on the way to the ring cost a little bit too much money and every dollar counted when they were chasing WCW. Pillman and JR don't really think too much of this match because you know it's flash funk and all so they start talking about the upcoming Chicago street fight at WrestleMania 13, saying the Legion of Doom invented the Chicago street fight. I I think Al Capone's crew from the 20s might have something to say about that. Pillman says that there might be some drive-by shootings at this, which, hey, Brian, you know, we've had enough with, with guns and you on our programming, maybe not talk about drive-by shootings or whatever. The match itself here is really strange because... Centeno's offense, he counter... Funk gets a head scissors at one point, which was pretty cool, getting out of a hammer lock. And then Centeno does the exact same thing. It's a head scissor-like Rana, or something like that. I don't know. Later, he lands a crossbody on Flash Funk. And I just wrote WTF question mark in my notes here because it's just really strange. I don't know, maybe... Funk felt like giving back on a day like today, but Flash Funk's offense, always really cool to look at. There's a lot of great two cold Scorpio matches out there. He's got the twisting leg drop, which only gets two, but then he makes the motion for the 450 splash. And I wrote here that there's a lot of guys who were not over at the time who had great finishers, and Flash Funk was among them course he would end up in ECW after staying in the WWF through the end of 1997 and he would end up in the ECW arena for the House Party 98 show in January and he would face off against the ECW television champion Taz and they had a memorable go during Scorpio's original ECW run and I recall the beginning of that match being a lot of fun because he was teasing that he did not want to be called Flash Funk in the ECW arena. And he was brought to the ring by, yes, Lance Wright. There's that name again. And the crowd starts chanting, too cold now, too cold now. And the ring announcer does call him Too Cold Scorpio. Lance Wright is outraged by this, and he gets punked by Scorpio, who then lands, I believe, the kind of flip leg drop off the top rope, and it looked <laughs> looked maybe a little stiff or something. I don't know. You'd still see Lance Wright a little bit longer. I don't. Why am I talking about Lance Wright so much on this show? I, he, 
he's just he's just there and what else am I going to talk about so how do you fix a problem like Flash Funk he comes to the ring he's smiling and all that and JR is like you gotta love it he's, he's always he's always smiling everywhere he goes I'm like yes poor Too Cold Scorpio he comes to the WWF and he's happens to be in that one era where it wasn't required for a black man to be dancing and smiling because you had Farouk, you had Ahmed Johnson, you had all the guys in the nation. And then later you would have Mark Henry who wasn't a dance and smile guy for much of his early run. So he's there during that period where the black athlete was not stereotyped into into that thing and what does he end up with a smiling and dancing gimmick so it is up to me right now to come up with a new gimmick for flash funk i'm not fantasy booking here i'm just trying to think of something that could work and what i'm thinking is this it had been a while since you had say the big boss man in the WWF. So why don't you bring in Too Cold Scorpio as kind of a kind of a sheriff character. I'm thinking maybe you could bring him in as Bart from Blazing Saddles. You know, you can change the name. You already have Bart Gun. You could bring him in as the third smoking gun or something. He could be the uh, sheriff or whatever. And you could have a whole introduction. I mean, is this any less ridiculous than Flash Funk? You could have a ceremony. Now, of course, you can't do the exact Blazing Saddle ceremony because that would be uh, that would not fly on television at that time. And I don't. I think the satire would be lost on people. In fact, the movie came out in 1974. We're here in 2017, and the satire of the scene where the sheriff shows up in the town is lost on a lot of people. But given what we do know about Charles Scraggs, he has enormous genitalia, as we've learned from shoot interviews and whatnot. So if he were to say, Excuse me while I whip this out. (laughs) See, not any more ridiculous than what Flash Funk was. So I think the idea could have worked. It was properly ridiculous, although... The thing is that Vince McMahon probably had not seen Blazing Saddles by 1997, given that it had only come out 23 years before that, so maybe it wouldn't have worked. And subtlety and satire in wrestling have never really been a great mix, has it? flashback to the previous Monday's episode of Raw, which was taped in the same place. But the way they would do it, of course, was Shotgun would go on before Raw, and then they would do the Raw. So kind of a mind meld if you dig too deep into it, which, of course, I always end up doing. We got Ken Shamrock in the ring. And, of course, he ended up being the special referee for the Austin versus Brett submission match at WrestleMania. This is when they formally announced that he would be the referee. And Shamrock is in there, and of course he had a history as a pro wrestler many years before his 
MMA career and he became much more famous in MMA. He got that moniker, the world's most dangerous man from ABC and that helped him kind of break back into professional wrestling and he had a lot of cachet, especially with me. For some reason, I felt that having a legit MMA guy in a, I, I guess, I, I thought he was going to be a division killer and that you couldn't plausibly beat him. But the thing that I always forgot about is it's professional wrestling, okay? I mean, it doesn't have to be a certain way. Nothing is set in stone. So it was perfectly fine. Although they did blow it with Shamrock by turning him heel in 98 when they did. In any event, we got an Austin interruption from the Titantron here to Shamrock's interview. And he says his usual, you know, don't, don't screw with me. And we get Bret Hart, who does not interview on the Titantron. He just makes his way out to the ring and gives Shamrock a little bit of what for telling him to, you know, stay out of his business. I do I was oh I was very taken and I should not be one to talk about accents. And you're listening to the show despite the fact that I'd never really able to wipe out my Boston accent despite living away from the area for 3 years from 01 to 04. I did develop a southern drawl for a brief period in 2002, but I think I was watching too much of certain kinds of television at the time. And it's not like I was living in Southern Virginia at the time. I was living in Northern Virginia. In any event, of course, Canadian accent, very noticeable on Brett, very proud Canadian. And I'm very taken by the way he says, sorry. You will be sorry. If you ever watched the TV show, How I Met Your Mother, which aired from 2005 through 2014, one of the great parts of that show is the exploration of Colby Smulders' character Robin and her Canadian heritage through the series. And at one point, they find out that she had been a Canadian pop star by the name of Robin Sparkles. And she had done a song called Let's Go to the Mall. And one of the lyrics in Let's Go to the Mall is... You won't be sorry. Won't be sorry. Nevertheless, Brett goes on his usual tirade of the time period saying that he's been screwed by everybody from Shawn Michaels to Psycho Sid. Now, of course, the, the formal heel turn wouldn't take place until WrestleMania when they executed the double turn, which was about as good of a double turn as you could possibly do in wrestling. It was like the exact opposite of the Demolition Powers of Pain double turn at Survivor Series 1988. And he says he's been screwed by this and that. And I was very taken by one thing that Brett said. I've been screwed by Vince McMahon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What was that again? Could you repeat that? I've been screwed by Vince McMahon. Brett, baby, I got some advice for you. Why don't you go back and watch that psychic hotline? ad that we saw a few minutes ago give that a call because if they're really good at being psychic they're going to tell you something that's coming up later this year that you're going to find very very interesting 
here, Papa and Pop. Close like Starsky and Hutch, stick to clutch. Here I squeeze three at your cherry M3. Bang every MC easily. Was that week in 1997 that the notorious B.I.G. was murdered in Los Angeles, California? It's very sad. It was actually after the release of the single for Hypnotize, but before the album Ready to Die, or excuse me, Life After Death would come out. I get all of his albums had some kind of death theme in the title, and it's easy for me, someone who's not as familiar with the genre, to get that confused. But I know that song was played at, uh, at my senior prom a couple of months later. For our last match here, we have a look at a couple of AAA superstars from Mexico. Is Heavy Metal taking on Hector Garza? And one thing I have to point out here is the Chirons for Shotgun Saturday Night were very different from your usual wrestling show. Instead of saying Heavy Metal, you know, Mexico City, 210 pounds or whatever, it would say Heavy Metal... And then underneath it, it said, hates Beethoven. So they were being cute with that. Hector Garzers said, hates tequila, loves the woo. Which I don't know if they're trying to call Worcester the woo. I, I'm really thinking too much there. Uh, these guys actually had a rivalry later on in which Hector Garza won Heavy Metal's hair in a match in 2001. Hector Garza... Uh, long-time solid worker in the business, passed away from lung cancer uh, about four years ago. He was the Mexican heavyweight champion at the time, and the belt was then retired and has not been handed out since. A little further back on Hector Garza, I have two, uh, well, I have one main memory of him from his WCW days because this AAA affiliation with the WWF really didn't work out. A lot of the matches, like what you see here, were really heatless because people just had no connection to these guys. And it wasn't benefiting the WWF in any way other than the fact that it provided people for the Royal Rumble in San Antonio. But it did get the AAA guys on TV, so it was good for them. And Hector Garza would eventually find his way over to WCW, and he would work in those Lucha Libre matches you would see in the first hour of Nitro. But his most famous moment to me occurred on Thunder in early 1999. And this was a source of uh, some joking among the Boston University Wrestling Federation at the time. And I'll read here from The Observer, or more accurately from At Observer Quotes, which is a Meltzer in the 90s Twitter account that takes blurbs of Wrestling Observer newsletters from a time period and puts a little timestamp on there. This one's from March of 1999. It's Hector Garza. Hector Garza ripped his scrotum in the Thunder match with psychosis. And yes, that was a gruesome injury that Hector Garza suffered at that point. And ugh, uh, ugh. Just, I'm just going to move on. Garza was actually deported from the United States in 2005 after he was caught with some drugs before a match with Scott Hall. So let that one sink in. And then he was replaced in the match by Jeff Hardy. Which, how much, how much drugs do you have to get caught with where, all right, this, this guy, we can't take any, we can't take any, we're going to put Jeff Hardy 
in, in his place. So that's something that happened in TNA of the time period. Uh, he heavy Metal is actually from the Casas wrestling family. His real name is Eric Casas. And he is the brother of the great Negro Casas, one of the greatest Mexican wrestlers of all time and the son of Pepe Casas. So there's really... I am no expert on Mexican wrestling. You can really find somebody else for that. I'm the guy who saw La Sombra at NXT Lowell and had no idea who he was because it's, you know, Manny Andrade. And I was so taken by him that I needed to find out more. And then I watched some La Sombra matches from Mexico and I love the guy. And it's just too bad that NXT screwed up everything uh, with him. A lot of mat work in this match early on, and they're doing a lot of high-flying stuff, but it's all it's all missing. Uh, before the match, uh, <laughs> they mentioned AAA, and Pillman says that heavy metal is the size of a AAA battery. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, this match, because you know it's heatless and the crowd really doesn't care, uh, Pillman and JR, they, they take this opportunity to get in their uh, references of the time. And Pillman says that heavy metal is about as heavy heavy metal as Pat Boone. Now, Pat Boone, of course, is a country singer, conservative, and all that. But in July of 1997, he released a heavy metal album where he did covers of 12 different songs. Uh, they're not all heavy metal per se. I mean, Panama is on there. A lot of hard rock songs. Pat Boone does Crazy Train. Pat Boone does Paradise City, originally by Guns N' Roses. No More Mr. Nice Guy, Alice Cooper. And You Got Another Thing Coming by Judas Priest. So that's what that is. And <laughs> Pillman squeezes in a very odd reference saying that this job... Uh, looks to be worse or whatever than the working in a Kathy Lee sweatshop. That didn't really land, I don't think, all that well. The Kathy Lee sweatshops were in Southeast Asia and became an issue at the time. And I know that a friend of mine led some protests down at Georgetown regarding Georgetown using sweatshop labor. And that was a huge issue when I was in college. That was kind of the protest cause celebra of the day. JR says that we're running out of time and we might not see that sunny undercover segment that they've been plugging the whole time. And the, we actually never did get to see the sunny undercover segment as it was originally intended because what happened was they show a little bit of it later on and what ends up happening is that they end up reshooting what would have aired and the new segment aired on the following week's show instead. So, well, Sunny in 97, they were just trying to figure out crap for her to do. She was working on Shotgun as one of the announcers. And then, of course, they switch out to Brian Pillman here. It's a good little match here. The, the crowd doesn't really care that much. They actually go to commercial in the middle of it, which makes it feel like a Raw match from 2017 or something. But... Garza uh, picks up the win. He gets a missile drop kick off the top rope, which was refreshing to actually see a top rope move land because I think they're about 0 for 5 in this match. A lot of the high impact stuff was just missing. And then a standing moonsault. So 
get something that Apollo Crews, if anybody actually gives a crap about him, that's what I think he's still doing these days. I mean, I haven't seen an Apollo Crews match in a while, but Standing Moonsault by Hector Garza picks up the win here. So a little slice of AAA in Worcester, Massachusetts on WWF Shotgun Saturday Night. I know what you're doing I see it all too clear I only taste the saline When I kiss away your tears You really had me going Wishing on a star The black holes that surround you Are heavier by far I believed in your confusion So completely torn Get an ad for the... MSG show coming up the next night, say Sunday night at Madison Square Garden as Doc Hendricks, still hanging on to that moniker, not yet back to Michael Hayes for some matches at Madison Square Garden, including Triple H versus The Rock for the Intercontinental title. Although I think that match would be a little bit bigger if you throw in a ladder and have it at SummerSlam about, eh, about 15 months later, I'd say. Yeah. That actually worked out. But I was much more taken by the commercial for NBA Shootout 97. I didn't play that game, and I don't remember it at all. But I am <laughs> I was very amused by the guy in the ad, Feldman. I don't know if he was the same guy who played Feldman on Seinfeld as the bizarro group of Elaine's friends, who was kind of the Kramer on the other side, the bizarro Kramer. But to me, he looked exactly like Ricky Rowe from Blue Chips. And I know it's not the same guy, but he kind of had that look of tall, lanky, white dude with, like, you know, shaved close on the side and a little bit of hair on top. You know, the Eric Montross look. And I hope you actually remember who Eric Montross Big college star, North Carolina, mid-1990s, got drafted by the Boston Celtics and had a very good rookie year and then pretty much flamed out after that. The Celtics traded him to Dallas to facilitate a swap from number nine to number six in the 1996 NBA draft where they selected Antoine Walker. So there's an Antoine Walker reference on a wrestling podcast. I didn't know that that would come up. Now, the WWF's production here is about as reckless as Antoine Walker's shot selection. Now, how's that for a transition there? As Sonny's music hits, and there's a bed at the top of the stage there, and we're going to get the Sonny undercover segment, but there's only 40 seconds left of the video, so I can kind of see what's going to happen. And this is actually a point where I wish that Tony Schiavone was there instead of Jim Ross because he would have said something to the effect of, yeah, Sonny Undercover, fans, we're out of time. We'll see you Monday for Raw. It's wild. But, yeah, they run out of time. Sonny actually starts talking, and the show goes off the air. And I don't know what happened here, but what I do know is that I believe there are certain Skype channels in which you can have a Sonny Undercover experience of your own. I... I refuse to investigate that any further, but if you look hard enough, you can probably find out more information about it. And if, if you feel like doing it, more power to you. And more power to Tammy Sitch for making that money however she can. I, I definitely do not judge. So the show has now gone off the air, but we still have one piece of business left, and it's a very brief and dark edition of YouTube Comment Theater. 
Now, Richard Land only posted this episode of Shotgun about a month ago, so there's not very much in the way of comments here. Only 11 comments at this time. It's just short, shy of about 3,000 views. And a lot of the comments are a little dark, given that you have Brian Pillman as a star of this show, you have Owen Hart, British Bulldog, a lot of guys who are no longer with us. And the first comment uh, touches on the death of Jim Ross's wife, which was about a week and a half before WrestleMania in a car accident. And uh, that was just really an unspeakable tragedy. And uh, of course, hearts and prayers of everyone who's a wrestling fan or a human being should go out to Jim Ross. Commenter Jay Bishop, it's something that I touched on earlier. Maybe it was planted in my head after reading this a while ago. Ha ha ha. Quote, if the censors don't like it, you're going to get fired, not me. Pillman sure was perceptive. JR got moved on from WWE in 2013 for Ric Flair's behavior at the WWE 2K14 Symposium. Yeah, there was a lot written and said at the time when that happened. Ric Flair was having a lot of fun at that, and for some reason, JR got blamed because... WWE loves to scapegoat Jim Ross for whatever reason, and I, I, I just don't get it. Kenneth Malone says, Michael Hayes was always great with the promos and he could get worked up about anything, but his excitement about those In Your, in your Hours PPS were a little too much. LOL. Well, I think it's meant to say In Your House PPV, not PPS. Yes, reading the Madison Square Garden show. He's a little bit behind what Mean Gene Oakland was, and even Sean Mooney, who I sung the praises of in the last episode for his wit and wisdom in the event center. Joel LLO, I don't even know how to pronounce that, says, Brian Pillman had just 204 days left to live on this day. God, that's really sad to think about. One of the great what-ifs that I consider a lot is a healthy Brian Pillman in 1998 WWF. Teaming with Austin, going against Austin, he would have been a complete wrecking ball and it would have been awesome. And, you know, the Brian Pillman of WCW who was a cruiserweight going against Jushin Thunder Liger, I love that guy. You know, oh, special team for the Cincinnati Bengals of the National Football League. But also, the Pillman that evolved into a horseman, and the loose cannon, which I love. It's probably my favorite gimmick of all time. It's just a shame that the guy literally worked himself into a shoot and had such a reliance on painkillers and had heart issues stemming from birth. I mean, he had a lot of health issues in his life with all the throat surgeries and whatnot as a child, but of course he would always take that throat bump on the guardrail in just about every Brian Pillman match. Last comment here, McGanahan Skajelli Fetty, and this is one of it's one of the things I can hardly read any of these names. Doesn't anybody have a normal name here? Was this in the quote attitude era? No, McGanahan, this would not be classified as the attitude era as such. I generally put the start of it at, well, most people put the start of it at Vince McMahon's Cure for the Common Show speech, which was in December of 1997, 
after Brett left. Another spot where you could say that it started is the formation of DX, which was around August 4th or the August 11th Raw in 1997. Either either one, it's much later in the year in 1997 that you could say the formal Attitude Era began. That'll do it for today's show. And I have made up my mind for an episode to do next week. Of course, 1997 for this show is the latest I've gone in the timeline by about two and a half years. So next week, we're going to kick it back to the really old school, back to February 1980. Yes, the month where the United States hosted the Lake Placid Olympics and the Miracle on Ice took place. But there was another thing going on down in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where we'll be going for the, I believe, third time thus far, before Cena and Orton, before Triple H and The Rock, before Savage and Hogan, before Piper and Hogan, we had Bruno and Larry. And on this show, Bruno San Martino will face off against his protege, Larry Zbysko. And what I intend to cover on the show is a bit of the build-up to it, because a lot of people know about what happened in the Bruno San Martino-Larry Zbysko feud and match. But the background of it and the lead-up to it is... So brilliant and one of the best things that the World Wrestling Federation ever did from a storytelling perspective and how subtle they were about everything. As I mentioned earlier, wrestling isn't very good with subtlety, but it just came off so well in that case back in 1980. So do do tune in next week for a very special episode of Greetings from Allentown. Excuse me while I whip this out. <laughs> Oh. Cool.